Leonard Bernstein, the great Leonard Bernstein once said, in order to make something great, all you need is a plan and not enough time. This morning, you're going to witness a classic example of someone trying to do too much with too little time. I just want to just say it's going to be like a vaudeville plate spinning act where we're, I'm, we're going to be spinning a lot of plates, and they're really important plates. We're talking about massive things this morning, and woo! So just buckle up, because we're going to do this. I feel really strongly about this. I've been gone for the last three weeks. Some of you may have noticed, may have not. It's fine. But if you didn't notice, I've been gone for the last three weeks, and, and I had this... Uh, I, I did, took a prayer retreat, we did some traveling, etc. One of the things, though, this has been on my heart a lot, what we're talking about this morning. It's connected to my story. I think it's connected to your story. And I think that Christians have been giving a lot of lame answers to big questions. And so this morning, we're just going to ask really, really big questions. And we're going to be like Icarus. Any Zeppelin fans out there? No? Okay, Icarus was this Greek mythology figure who had wax wings. So if he flew too close to the sun, they'd melt. And if he flew too close to the ocean, they, uh, they, he'd die. So we're Icarus. So we're just going to be trying to fly through this sweet spot. I'm not afraid to do this. It's okay. I can answer emails of offense. That's fine. I'm not worried about that. But I really want to be very careful with what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about suffering. And there's a lot of lame responses that the church has given. I'm not saying they're not true. But they're lame. If you've ever been suffering and someone comes up to you and says, you know the reason you're suffering? So you can help someone else who's suffering. Well, why are they suffering? That might be true. That might be true. And again, you know, we, as St. Vincent says, we pay our way in pain. That's not like a, she's a singer. It's not like a real saint or anything like that. I realized I had to be careful there. We pay our way in pain. You get credibility when you suffer and then you're able to speak to other people. But when you're suffering and someone's like, oh, you know why you lost your job? One day you'll help other people who've lost their job. That's lame. Another lame response we get to suffering you're suffering so you can be more like Christ. Now that may be true. That may be true. I want you to imagine though, couples just lost a child. That's a lame answer. There's people who are suffering with sickness and cancer and we come in with true things but they're pithy and they're cheap. It's not helpful. That's one plate we're spinning. Another plate that we're spinning is we're going to be in the Gospel of John, sort of, today. John wants us to see that Jesus thinks and feels differently about suffering than we do. I am concerned that many of us have a religious attitude towards suffering. A couple weeks ago we said religion is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I did what God asked. I went to church. I read my Bible. I prayed. I gave. God 
Where's my blessing? That's religion. I obey, therefore I accept it. I'm a good person, good things happen to me. Grace says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It flips it. Suffering makes us ask big questions, and suffering also exposes we all have this residue of religion all over us. Good friend of mine, she's not in her dream career. She went to grad school, she moved around the country, she worked really hard, she's qualified, and she doesn't have her dream job. And it's painful. And she's saying, what, why don't I have this dream job? And we're talking about it, and she goes, you know, it's probably because God knows, like, I'm really selfish, and he's trying to work out some selfishness in me. Do you hear the religion there? And you're like, well, that's not me. That's me! I, they don't let you stand two and a half feet taller than everybody else because you've mastered things. I, I'm, I'm up here just so you can see me, not because I've done anything to earn being up here. I'm a pilgrim just like you, trying to figure this whole thing out. And it's a deep part of my story of how we suffer. Jesus heals a man who had been suffering 38 years. If my math serves me right, what was 38 years ago? Is that 1985? 1985. What were you doing in 1985? There was Brittany, Madonna, way before Nirvana. No? Music still on MTV. Okay, thank you. I'm here all day, folks. 1985, this person was suffering. 2023, they get healed. Day in, day out. They're suffering. Jesus sees him, heals him. What do the religious leaders do? Uh, you healed him on the Sabbath, and oh, that's pretty bad. And you read it, and you're like, what? Are you kidding me? That was awesome. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have healed on the Sabbath. It's a religious attitude towards suffering. And so another plate we're going to be spinning today is this discipline that I have given my life to. It's what I was trained in. It's called biblical theology. Hey, biblical theology, what's that? Isn't all our theology supposed to be biblical? Basically, biblical theology does this. It takes one text of Scripture and then another text of Scripture, and it just compares the two of them. This text and that text. And in comparing the two of them, you see some hyperlinks. Whoa, these are related. We didn't even know they were related. Holy cow, that's amazing. This is a unified story. That's incredible. And in doing that, you get this depth of meaning. So today, we're going to practice biblical theology. That's like the only reason I got into ministry was because I said, hey, I want to do biblical theology in public. I think it can change the world. And I still believe that. So we're going to do some biblical theology. We're going to take John's gospel, and we're going to hold it up in light of the book of Job. Now, another plate that we're going to be spinning. There's a lot of misconceptions about the book of Job. A lot. The book of Job, you may remember, is God is hanging out in his heavenly courtroom. This figure called the Satan comes in. And they're like, hey, what are you doing, Satan? And the Satan's like, I was just roaming the earth. And God's like, wow, what'd you see? And the Satan's like, I don't know, stuff. And God's like, did you see Job? And then we think, oh, like God and Satan make a wager, like a bet. And then they ruin this poor guy's life. Not funny, terrible. And then we get a lot of chapters of people going back and forth about what's happening. And then God shows up like the Wizard of Oz and is like, Job, you got some questions? Well, where were you when I created the world? You're welcome. And it's like, that's the book of Job. Hooray! That is not the book of Job. 
Those are misunderstandings about the book of Job. Those are some of the details of the book of Job, but they're divorced of context. They're divorced of historical context. And God sounds like, I don't know, this? Jack Nicholson? And he's kind of a bully? Like, Job's this innocent guy. It's like, watch this. And Job's like, I have questions. And it's like, too bad. Welcome to church. So that's a plate we're going to be spinning. We're going to try to untangle some of that stuff. Then, uh, yeah, I know. (laughs) Then we're going to work our way to pushing back two lies suffering tells us. Lie number one, you deserve this. Lie number two, you are alone. You guys ready? All right. Here's where we're, let's get it. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 maybe. Then we're going to talk about two very important things happening in that text. Then we're going to just pogo stick through the book of Job. And what I really hope that you see is that everybody in this room is trying to make sense of life through this triangle. We're going to explain the triangle. Don't worry. We're all trying to make sense of, this, of life through this triangle. Do you remember, when I was a kid, there was a very popular book, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? That's this triangle. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is just, that's the top of the triangle. If God is just, how come the world doesn't seem just? If he runs the world from a place of justice, why do people get away with bad things? That doesn't feel just. Why Job is righteous? Why do bad things happen to good people? And then this whole retribution, right? Our secular friends and neighbors call that karma. Which is not actually what karma is, but that's, we're already trying to do too much. If I do good, good things happen. I worked hard. I should get a promotion. I showed up. I tried my best. Good things should happen to me. The book of Job is everyone trying to make sense of life, and each, each tries to make sense by cutting off one of the corners of the triangle. And then God shows up, and he cuts off two of the corners, right? So we're going to try to make sense of this triangle because if you don't get anything else, here's what I'm trying to say. Suffering is suffering because you don't deserve it. Suffering is suffering because you don't deserve it. People get cancer. That's suffering. Parents bearing their children. Suffering. Couples who've been faithfully married for over 40 years. One dies. Suffering. Suffering's going to tell you a lie. You did something. And the book of Job emphatically says, no, you didn't. You did not. God, uh, the, the triangle God keeps is Job's righteousness. Job, throughout this book, is incredible. He's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I'm fine. His friend's like, yeah, he did. And he's like, no, I didn't. We're trying to push back this whole religious way we suffer. You're like, I'm not a religious sufferer. We, we all are. I, uh, I've talked about this before, but I have a disease called Crohn's disease. Uh, and I got really sick, and I got diagnosed when I was in seminary. And I remember, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky for seminary, and I'm wandering around the campus of Southern Seminary. It's early in the morning, and this good old Southern boy 
is on campus as well, and he's eating like a good old southern boy breakfast. He's got Doritos and Pepsi. <laughs> My dearest apologies if you're from the South. I love the South. It's a great place. People misunderstand it. It's lovely. In that moment, I lost it. I'm like, God, my body doesn't work. All the food I eat feels like a brick with nails going through my digestive system. And this guy, look at the breakfast he's eating. He feels fine. God, for years, I drank kale smoothie for lunch. I ate oatmeal for breakfast. I had quinoa for dinner. I rode my bike to work and my body's failing me. I was good. I don't deserve the bad. You hear the religion? That's us. We're going to poke at this triangle. Suffering makes us ask hard questions. Let's not give lame answers. John chapter 5, we're going to read it. Here we go. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One of them had been in, an invalid for 38 years. 1985. When Jesus saw him lying there, learned that he had been in this condition for a, a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Sir, the, inv the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Uh, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath! The law forbids you to carry your mat! Cool. But he replied, uh, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Uh, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and, and said to him, see, that, see, you're well again, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made them well. This is the really important verse. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. That verse, verse 16, is the key to understanding all our suffering. Verse 16. So let's talk about suffering. We can't, we're gonna, there's a lot of weird things in that passage, like this pool's being stirred, what's happening? That's next week. This week, we're not going to go blow by suffering. What, what is suffering? We all try to make sense of our suffering via this triangle. Right here. God is a just God. He runs the world according to justice. Job was a good person. He didn't do anything wrong. And there's a principle called retribution. You reap what you sow. If you work hard at work, you'll get a promotion. You'll be able to get a mortgage. you buy a house and have a nice white picket fence because you worked hard. Retribution. This is the world that Job lived in. This is what his, his, he believed, his neighbors believed. And now suffering has made him ask tricky and difficult questions. Suffering has a way of doing that. A lot of us don't really ask questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is this for? Why do I go to work 40 hours a week to do this job I don't really care about? We don't ask that unless we're in hard times. Darkness makes us cry out for light. Suffering has a way of doing these things. 
Lie number one that suffering tells us, though, is that we deserve this. Remember that weird scene we talked about at the beginning of Job, Job 1 and 2? Like, ah, it's really odd and strange. It is really odd and strange. But Job is, the author of Job is communicating to an audience who sees the world far differently than you and I do. Far differently. This is, we're not even talking like, oh, like, you know, that was when people had attention spans. You know, this is like a post-TikTok world. We can't think about anything for more than 38 seconds. Welcome back. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like they had a fundamentally different worldview about what gods were, what humans were. And so when people suffer in Job's day, people are like, well, you deserve this. And so Job, as he starts suffering, he has these three friends who show up. And what do they do? They, they try to make sense of Job's suffering by cutting off that bottom triangle corner that says Job is righteous. And you've met this person when you suffer, right? They're the people that come in in fix-it mode right away with ideas of how you can make this better. Well, have you tried? Have you tried? Here's what his friends say. Job 4, 5, and 7. This is one of his friends. But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? What are they saying? Job, you did something bad. You're suffering because you did something bad. That's how we make sense of a world that's painful. I must have done something. And we do that. When we lose our jobs, first question many of us ask, what did I do to deserve this? When we get cancer, well, God, what are you doing? What have I done? We saw off that triangle to make sense of this. And you have to respect Job. Job is pretty awesome. He doesn't ever cut off that triangle. Listen to how he responds to his friend. Oh, by the way, it's 27 chapters later from Job 4 to Job 31. If I've walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me with honest scales and he will know I am blameless. What's he saying? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. The Bible is pushing back on this lie. You deserve this. That's actually pagan to think I'm suffering because I did something wrong. Uh, in the ancient Near East, when you upset the gods, you didn't upset them because of ethics. It wasn't like you did something wrong. You upset them because of ritual. So there's a lot of stories in the ancient Near East, the time that Job was written, about people who had upset the gods and started suffering. And how did they upset the gods? They accidentally like, stepped in a sacred space. They went somewhere they shouldn't have accidentally. They had no idea. And the gods just were like, we got to punish you. And so it's a total mystery. So you're like, I'm just walking along, minding my own business. Now I'm suffering. And you go to the gods. Gods, what did I do? And they're like, you shouldn't have stepped on that space. You went through that vineyard. We needed those grapes. Those are our grapes. Get out of our vineyard. Okay, what do I do? Give us 50 bucks. Okay, great. And we're good. That's the religious leaders in John chapter 5. What was Jesus' crime? You healed somebody on the Sabbath broke a ritual. What are you doing? That was suffering in the ancient Near East. See, in the ancient Near East, God was totally different from the gods. 
totally different. Job is really a polemic. It is a fight against this pagan worldview. This is, this is what the, the relationship is like. The gods needed people, and people needed the gods. We call that codependency. They had this codependent relationship. That's what it meant to know a god. So the gods were like up there in the heavens and like, woohoo, we got wine and we got parties. Great. Ah, oh, the parties are messy. I don't really want to clean up. I'm a god. Like, you know what we should do? What? Let's make people. Okay. So then the gods have a need. So they make people out of their needs. They're like, hey, serve us. And the people are like, okay, just don't kill us. So the people now have a need. Ah, uh, the world is scary and terrifying. Gods, will you protect us? And there's this codependent relationship. And what does suffering look like in that codependent relationship? It's random. You just step somewhere you shouldn't have, and the God's like, we're removing protection from you. And you're like, God, ah, please don't do that. That's not how God operates. Right away in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, that scene that's very strange, listen to this in verse 6. One day, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? The Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because we do have to address this spinning plate. God is communicating. This is not how God runs the world, where he's like, what's going on? You know, I don't know. I'm busy. And so, like, oh, I was walking around. Well, what'd you see? Okay, that's not how God runs the world. So the Bible is communicating to people in a culture with their cultural furniture. Okay? But even among that, listen to this. This is amazing. Uh, the Lord said, this is verse 7, Where have you come from? The Satan answered, From roaming the earth. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. For he is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Why is that in the book of Job? to tell us to push back on lie number one. You deserve this. Job didn't deserve the suffering. He was righteous. He was blameless. God says that. He's a good guy. What's happening here? So we can't, we can't make sense of the world by just shaving off. Man, I'm suffering and I did something. We just can't shave that off. Now, am I saying that there aren't consequences for bad behavior? No. Of course there are consequences for bad behavior. How do you know that? Just do some bad behavior. You'll find out there are consequences for bad behavior. Like, tell your boss what you really think of them. Like, you know what, I, you know what I've been meaning to say to you for a long time? And you just, like, just remove the filter, and you'll find there are consequences for bad behavior. That's not what suffering is here. Suffering is not talking about justice. One of Job's friends, there's, there's evidence of evangelicals living in the ancient Near East. One of Job's friends, a guy named Elihu, he edits that bottom triangle. He's like, Job, okay, after like 20 chapters, he's like, you may be, yeah, maybe having all these bad things, but you know what? You're probably self-righteous. You're probably trusting your own righteousness. Right? So he's still, it's an edit to it, and he's close, but he's still chopping off that bottom half, to which Job replies, it's amazing. This, Job is not just talking about behavior. He's talking about heart attitude here. 31. If I have put my trust in gold. So if I'm looking to gold for my confidence, security, identity, my wealth. Or I say to gold, you're my security. Then these also would be sins to be judged. For Then I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Job's even pushing back on Elihu. He's like, I'm not even self-righteous. I genuinely was honoring God. 
See, so many of us will plunge the depths to find something wrong that we've done. We call it the Christian failure narrative. I surely must have done something. I don't even know. That's not an answer to our suffering. We suffer because there's evil in the world and the world doesn't work like it should. Now, some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are like, that's not really helpful. Just like Job is pushing back on the religious movement of his day, we also need to generously and lovingly push back on religious movements in our day. And again, ideas, not people. I disagree with Flannery O'Connor when she says, as much as an unbelieving world pushes, push back. It's like, what? It's not Christian. How about love back? So I'm not saying let's just be jerks. Christianity has a problem with, of evil. It's called the problem of evil. It's a huge philosophical problem. People have been trying to solve it for years. And if you think I'm here to solve it this morning, I will give you your money back on the way out. You know who does not have a problem of evil, though? Atheism. If we are just random particles, and if we are just a chemical reaction, there's no guarantee that we should like that. If life doesn't matter and we're just random chance, and like a mathematical random chance that's really incredible, and there's no God above, there's no hell below, if we're just a random chance, there's no promise that that should be a pleasant experience. There is no problem of evil. We're just chemical reactions and sometimes it hurts. Christianity has a problem of evil because Christianity claims that God is good. And that creates the tension. If God is good, why is life hard? One of the things that God does to make sense of this triangle is he chops off two corners. He chops off the corner that says that God runs the world according to justice. You need to hear me loud and clear. God does not run the world according to justice. If God ran the world according to justice, every time I ride my bike on Broadway Boulevard and cars cut me off, they would instantly crash into a telephone pole Sustaining no injuries, but creating an insurance nightmare that lasted for months. There'd be no cold cases. Child abusers would get caught. But that's not what happens. And the Bible invites these questions. If God is just, he is. Justice flows from who he is. It's technically not right to say God is just. Because when we say God is just, you're holding up a standard and you're judging God. You're like, well, God is just because we have all these things about what it means to be just and he, he checks the bill. No, no, no. He, justice flows out of who he is, his character, his goodness. But he doesn't run the world according to his justice. He runs the world according to his wisdom. He doesn't run the world according to his justice. The world is organized according to God's wisdom. What in the world does that mean and how is that helpful for us? The book of Job exists to be Obi-Wan to Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. It's Godfather Part 2 to Godfather Part 1. It's The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings. You didn't know Godfather Part 2 was a prequel, did you? I see some of you on that. Man, Godfather Part 2 is a prequel. Well, not the whole thing, part of it. Job works the same way. What's happening? The story's already out. The, like, like, the, the train has left the station. We were created in a garden to live with God, and it was good. 
The train leaves the station, chaos gets in that garden, and poof, everything is awful. And now as the story is unfolding, the authors say, let's fill this out a little bit. Let's start to give you some info. You're, oh, wow, that's why Obi-Wan is called Ben, and you know, the whole Princess Leia child. I didn't see it, because life is short, and there's only so many Disney things you can watch. It's made to fill out a story that's already taking place. And what, what exactly is the story that's already taking place? See, we're trying to do too much, but hang on there for a second. The book of Genesis. One of my favorite verses in Genesis, Genesis 50, 21. Why did God create a world where snakes come into gardens and evil? That, what? What's happening here? Genesis 50, 21. It's the end of the book of Genesis and explains everything. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What's happening? This world is extremely complex. And, and God allows people to use agency, free will. And in doing so, it creates more complexity and more chaos and creates all kinds of questions. And God, through providence, is guiding all of that in his wisdom toward goodness. Now, do you rush there with someone who's suffering? No. Job's friends, they get a bad rap. They're really geniuses. The, like the Hebrew is really hard to read and it's like really poetic and they're very philosophical. So like imagine basically like you're suffering and Kendrick Lamar shows up. Like he's just able to just say like really deep things and like really rhythmic American poetry and you're like, holy cow. That's what Job's friends are. And they get a bad rap. We're like, oh, they give him terrible advice. Which they do. But even they, even they knew to stay quiet for seven days. One of the hardest things I had to learn as a pastor is like, oh, they don't need me to say anything. They just need me to be here. Why? Because this is lie number two that suffering tells us. You're alone. No one's coming for you. This doesn't happen to anyone else. And you're alone. And that's what Job is experiencing. He's begging throughout the book, if I can just talk to God, if I can just have an audience with God, we can sort this out. But suffering says you're alone. You are on your own. You know what else says that too? Religion. Look at the, look at the reaction when this man is healed after 38 years. Verse 10, John chapter 5. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, uh, it's the Sabbath? The law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's isolation. We're doing what's right. God's going to bless us. You're not. We just got to point that out. But why does Jesus move toward this man? Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? You want to get well? It's a passive verb. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to receive? Suffering tells us we are alone. One of the hardest things we can do while we're suffering is to tell other people that we're suffering. 
One of the hardest things when we're suffering is to invite other people into it because of the lie that suffering says, you're alone. They won't get it. They might be able to see something you did. They're going to give you advice. Stay alone. That's one of the beautiful things about aging. As we get older, our bodies start to break down. And what's that proverb that says the, the glory of a young man is his strength, but the glory of the elderly is their gray hair? Meaning experience, wisdom. You don't have that as a youth, but you can get really strong. But then your body breaks down. And what Jesus says to Peter the end of this gospel, one day someone's going to carry you where you don't want to go. What's he saying? They're going to put you in a home, Peter. As we age, we're learning limits. And what do we do as we learn those? I got it. I don't need to tell anybody about this. You know, you think my life's hard. Sure, surely someone else in this room has a way harder thing they're walking through. Suffering isolates. Jesus doesn't let that happen. He moves toward this man. You have to push back the lie when you're suffering that nobody gets it. Sometimes it's painful to push back that lie. Sometimes you do share your suffering with somebody and they don't get it. You take a risk, you're vulnerable, and you're like, here's what I'm walking through. Holy cow, well, have you tried? Or, or the best, my favorite. Well, so-and-so, I know somebody that does that, huh? And it's like, yep, I am alone. What's that old phrase? The average sale is made after eight calls. The average salesman gives up after three. Oh, the same is true with finding a friend. The average friend is made after eight vulnerability attempts. Here's, I am. Here's who I am. That's weird. Ooh. And each time it gets harder and it gets harder. But that's why this is really good news. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. His moving towards someone's suffering created suffering for him. Because he saw someone, a human, in a world where this person was not treated as a human, and he honored his humanity, he healed him. That created his own suffering. And that's Christianity's great contribution. Is that God is not indifferent to our suffering. He joins in on our suffering. Job maintains his innocence throughout the book of Job. I didn't do this. I'm blameless. But Job isn't really, truly blameless. Jesus, Paul goes on to say about Jesus, that God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's John 5, 16 saying? God sees our suffering and joins in with us. There are those of us in here walking through hell on earth. A body that's breaking down. A marriage that's ending. Death of children. 
Christianity's solution to those things is not, well, what'd you do? Christianity's solution is we trust a suffering Savior. If there is a God and if he is moving in the world, he is grieved by the pain that sin is causing. So grieved, he moves to action, to take the curse. God doesn't just see our pain, he feels our pain. I love the movie A Few Good Men. It's fantastic. And there's way more commentary going on in this movie than you're aware of. You may remember this scene. There's a young boomer, hotshot, who's just rising through the ranks of being a lawyer. His name's Tom Cruise. You're like, boomer? He's, yeah, it's 1992, okay? And he has a day in court with Jack Nicholson. This is really a metaphor for two generations and how they saw the world. It's the Cold War generation who the end justifies the means. We'll keep us safe, whatever means necessary. We may do things in the night that you don't like, but we're keeping us safe. In this new neoliberalism generation coming up, marrying the philosophies of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton together to say, hey, let's have no limits on things like human sexuality and no limits on markets. Let's blend those two things together and that will save the world. We're going to do that. And they clash in this courtroom. You remember the scene. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers? I want the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls. And those walls are guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do that? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? My existence, while despicable to you, saves lives. And this Marine's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. You hear that? That's the Cold War philosophy. Yeah, we have to do bad things, but we're keeping us safe. You don't know how to do that. You're just trying to enjoy yourself at cocktail parties. And the emerging generation is going, yeah, but it was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And we live in a world where there's just a breakdown of that argument. If you can understand that scene, now you understand tensions between China and the U.S. The U.S. is like, you shouldn't kill indigenous people and pollute the earth. And China's like, you did that. And it's like, ah. What do you do? We're just talking politics, and we haven't even got out of how complex the world is. Right? And we're like, ah, everything's polarized. Let's just not talk about anything. Things are designed to be polarized, by the way. When you have two options, Democrat and Republican, those are poles. So things are polarized. That's, yeah, that's by design. There's only two options. People are going to pick one. And we're like, well, we don't know what to do. We're stuck. We haven't even gotten very far. And we're not even talking, we're not even talking about anything really too complex. And God shows up to Job. And he does that. He puts his arm around him and says, hey, adorn yourself with pride and dignity and clothe yourself with splendor. What's he saying? You want to be God? It's hard. We just talked 20th and 21st century U.S. politics and we're frozen. God's like, I made these two sea monsters. The Leviathan and the Behemoth and they're really complex and wow, that could blow your brains. Here's what I do with water. Here's what I do with clouds. The world's extremely complex and I'm taking all that complexity and I'm working it 
for your good. He made him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God didn't abandon his creation when everything went to hell in a handbasket. It's like the Garden of Eden, the, the Satan just takes a bucket of paint and just dumps paint all over God's masterpiece. And we're all like, burn the painting, start over, or just freeze. And God's like, I'll make this beautiful. I don't know how. I don't know how your cancer will be redeemed. I'm super sad that there are people in this room who have buried their children. I do not have answers. But I do know that there is a Savior who feels that with us. And there are some things only heaven can fix. Some things don't make sense, and hard things are hard. But along the way, we don't cope by finding what we did. We cope by seeing a Savior who took suffering for us. And slowly, that starts to create love. And we start to see, wow, he is wise. And what he did was really loving. And I still don't like that I'm sick. I still don't like my situation. But I, I might be open that something else is happening here. And that's why we have communion together. In communion, we don't just eat bread and drink juice. We eat broken bread. And it's a reminder that Jesus suffered and he poured himself out. So I want to practice something together as we take communion in just a moment. I want to give you a prayer. And here's that prayer. Very simple. Yet very complex. God, help me feel what you feel about my suffering. We, we believe in prayer around here. That's why we have a prayer team. We also believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, that we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3. God, help me feel what you feel about suffering. He answers that prayer. He'll show you a cross. So in just a moment, we're going to get up from our seats. We're going to grab the elements. There's a broken piece of bread and there's a cup. And you can bring it back to your seats. And we're going to take communion together. A couple of instructions as we do that. Uh, you just head through the aisles. Grab and come back. And just, you know, just be mindful there's enough for everybody. And don't push, all right? Be there. There's gluten-free options to the front right. But I also want to just give you maybe a practice. If you feel led, if you are older in our congregation, what's that mean? Whatever you want. Would you ask someone else to grab the elements for you? It's just a way that we can practice inviting others 
into our suffering. There will be a day when someone has to bring you communion because you can't get up and get it. And the sooner we learn to ask for help, the sooner we are reminded we are not alone. Just an invitation, not an obligation. I'm going to pray, grab the elements, come back. I'll come back for more instruction after a couple minutes of singing. God, I don't want anyone to feel I feel. We've just tied a bow on some of the biggest questions we have. God, I pray that we would feel the invitation to bring these big questions to you. So God, as we partake of these elements, I pray that you would help us to feel what you feel about our suffering. Help us to be honest about the pain we're feeling because we know you'll be honest about the pain you're feeling. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.